Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome back to the New Books and Indian Religions podcast here on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Dr. Raj Balkaran. More about me at rajbalkaran.com. More importantly, today I get to speak with Dr. Anthony Cerulli, um, who is a professor of South Asian studies um, at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. We're going to be speaking about uh, a fascinating new work of his. Uh, it's open access. The link is, it's published by Luminos. Uh, the link is in the podcast notes. Um, it's called The Practice of Texts, Education and Healing in South India. Anthony, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much, Rod. It's great to be here. It's nice to meet you. Yeah, it's nice to meet you as well. Um, <laughs> the the, uh, the podcast has definitely um, improved my social life over COVID. But anyhow, <laughs> um, I feel like I've met a lot of people too by listening to your podcast. <laughs> it's good to know. It's good to know. Um, and also, it's funny when you have a podcast because there's dozens and dozens of scores, maybe even hundreds, thousands of people. They sort of feel they know you, and they probably do because I'm not particularly censored on the podcast, and yet. <laughs> You don't know them. <laughs> right. it, it's it's a it's a great service to our community of scholars and people of interest, you know, who are interested in South Asian studies. That you do these, it's great. Thank you. Oh, you're welcome. You're welcome. It's it's a labor of love, um, um, in all senses. Now, before we we dive into you and your work, Madison's a really important center in South Asian studies. There is an annual event at Madison. Do you want to say a little bit about that? Yeah, thank you. Um, ab- absolutely. We have the Center for South Asia at UW-Madison, which hosts the annual conference on South Asia every fall in October. Usually we, we have to time it so that we don't overlap with the home football game on campus. And so it varies. It's not the same date every year. Um, and this year, in fact, we're celebrating our 50th anniversary of the conference. So it's been around. And as far as I know, uh, you know, it's it's one of the, if not the largest, strictly South Asian studies focused conferences in the world. We bring in, geez, before the pandemic, we were bringing in um, around twelve to thirteen hundred people uh, to talk about their work, to go on panels and roundtables, and you know, keynotes and plenary lectures. It's it's a big event, and I also think it's a a little bit different than conferences that I'm used to, insofar as it's a pretty collegial, um, you know, down to earth event too. I've had a lot of really wonderful experiences as a graduate student where I've presented my very first academic paper uh, all the way up to the present day. And, uh, you know, there are people across the board in terms of, you know, where they are with their research at all levels. So it's a, I think a unique uh, event and a lot of fun. Yeah, yes, indeed. I've attended a couple, and it certainly is a very distinct communal feel. Uh, the Sanskrit word kutumba comes to mind. It's 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 palpable when you go when one goes to Madison, particularly in contrast to when one goes to the AAR. And then there's lots of excitement and opportunity, and you know there are pros and cons to each. But one is uh, vast and sprawling, uh, and the other is uh, more you know have dinner with the people that you've been having dinner with for you know. 10, 20 years while you've been coming here um, and very supportive. I actually was a grad student when I presented 
Madison, very supportive environment. Um, and without uh, any particular um, planning on my part, I happen to be covering a favorite of conferences on the podcast. As of late, I've talked to a group of, um, of Canadian scholars about a, a new association in Canada, and I just finished recording a podcast on the uh, Spalding Symposium for Indian Religions at the UK. Yeah. And here we are talking about Madison. Perhaps at some point we can do a more focused podcast on Madison, particularly in light of the fact that it is um it's uh, it's half a century old that's not nothing yeah. yeah it's a big deal and we're looking forward to some special events this fall uh for folks who can be there and um i think it'll bring a lot of people back maybe who you know of course for good reason you know haven't haven't been traveling and bring people together who haven't seen each other in a while and of course it was online last year but as we as many of us know it's not the same thing having a conference online and so we're excited hopefully fingers crossed things um you know go as planned and we'll all be together in madison for this big event Given that I didn't even realize, actually, given that it is the fiftieth um, year, I think I'll try and come. It should be fun. Yeah, yeah please and do. Yeah, and uh, yeah, look up, look up who's coming, and see if you can make some connections. Yeah, absolutely. Um, listen, uh, more about you and your book, the practice of texts. Uh, what's your book about? Well, uh, the the book, broadly speaking, is about. Um, the uses of Sanskrit literature, medical, Sanskrit medical literature in two educational settings of one of India's classical medicines, medical traditions called Ayurveda. And the two institutions are the Ayurvedic College and the South Indian Gurukula. Um, Gurukula, a word I think a lot of people know, certainly uh, listeners of this podcast will know it, but um, generally, just broadly, it's the teacher's residence, right? uh, the family of the teacher. And it's partly an historical examination of colonial era educational reforms, roughly between 1890 and 1975, that gave rise to the Ayurvedic College, which is this very important and um, prominent institution of Ayurvedic education in India today. Uh, but during those reforms, we see the Gurukula which had been in practice for a long, long time. If we look at the text, you know, the references to Gurukula education are quite old. And um, during those educational reforms, we see the Gurukula get critiqued pretty sternly. And this leads to a reorganization and of course, translation of the Sanskrit medical classics. And uh, so I look at that history, I follow that history and that history more or less lays the groundwork for the latter half of the book, which is, um, an ethnography of the Ayurvedic Gurukula in 21st century South India. And, you, and it's uh, actually, it's, it, I, I find uh, this work, I mean, there have been scores of fascinating books without question, but I find this so fascinating um, for so many reasons. And the, I think the themes will pull out a little later on in the podcast. Um, so listen, so you're studying people or texts, or are you studying both? What's your data for this project? <laughs> Both. And um, that's that's something that was, you know, I've, I've looked at and thought about for a long time. I'm drawing on field work here that I, I carried out between 2003 and 2017, and that overlaps with my dissertation and graduate school. So the project was in the works for a while, and I could go back. We could talk about the genesis of it, if you'd like. Tell us. Yeah. Tell us the genesis. Well, the genesis is my, my first book, which was a uh, a um, 
revision of my dissertation. It's called Somatic Lessons, Narrating Patienthood and Illness in Indian Medical Literature. There's a more or less strictly philological study of disease um, and the, the role of storytelling in the Sanskrit medical classics, the Charaka Sahita, the Shushutra Sahita, and the Ashtanga Hridayam. Um, and I, I basically dealt with text. And at, at some point in graduate school, you, you go through all the phases of coursework and the exams and so on and so forth. And then you're released into the world to write your dissertation. And I did that by going to South India initially and through some connections and so on. I met a number of people uh, who helped me try to work through the text I wanted to read that went into that dissertation and then the book. But these people also introduced me to families of physicians who were using the Ashtanga Hridayam, that, that third book that I mentioned that I, I call the Sanskrit medical classics, but really it's, that's, there's no official word on whether they're the classics of, uh, of Ayurveda. It's kind of an unofficial canon. Um, who, who introduced me to a family, an extended family of uh, traditionally trained physicians in that one text who still use that text as the primary basis for their clinical work and the clinical work they do in their house. And they also train students in their houses. And so while I met these people and they were very nice to me and very hospitable and open to questions and conversation, um, they also started reading some texts with me. And meanwhile, they're working, they're training students, they're uh, seeing patients all the while. And, and so I think, you know, from 2003, when I first met the people that I primarily talk about in this book, I knew that I'll, I'll work on my dissertation, I'll write this book that is going to be about disease and storytelling in the Sanskrit classic, medical classics. But I also at some point need to come back and see how people are using these texts today. Because in many ways, seeing the life of them uh, was as captivating to me as the material in them. Or, yeah. And that's the practice of text in, in a sense. I, I, I also have some more, you know, shades of meaning to that. But that's more or less how we get to that title. Well, this is really important, right? This is really important. I say this as a textual scholar, you know, uh, I don't do any ethnography, but I sort of am an armchair ethnographer as I walk through life. But 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 understanding, I mean, we have this 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 enormous um, 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 tendency uh, towards overprivileging the textual domain, right? For a variety of reasons, many of which are valid, with respect to the production of scholarship, with respect to um, looking at sources that are canon, et cetera, et cetera. Um, however, the, the ancient India is home to a very different um, means of transmission and record keeping. Mm -hmm. And so when you say there's question about which texts are canon, and when you say you're talking to these people about how they use a text, say a bit about that culture of, you know, I have this saying at the, the, my online school of Indian wisdom, the text is on the tongue. <laughs> wow, that would have been and great so, for this book. So, so tell me a little bit about the culture of the preservation of knowledge uh, that, you've, that you've been exposed to through your research. Yeah, the, uh, the, one of the things that I, I learned early on in the, the early aughts of, this, uh, of the 21st century when I was working in Kerala with one of these families that I discuss in the book is, uh, or one parts of this bigger, bigger family rather, one uh, household, is that they, they train students according to what is a, a practice they describe in Malayalam as mukamukam. And basically, it just means face to face. And, you know, it's just like we're doing it on Zoom, essentially. We're face to face, uh, tete a tete in French. 
Um, and, but there's a very structured physical arrangement that they, these folks follow. And then there's also a, a pedagogical method that traditionally has been uh, upheld for, for generations. And this goes back quite far. When I was first working in Kerala, I, I would um, spend some time with the, the oldest member, the grandfather of this family, who talked about his teachers learning this way and their teachers learning this way. And there's a passage in the Charaka Sahita, which is, is our oldest of the Sanskrit medical texts in India that lays out this method of memorizing an entire text. And then after memorizing that text with your teacher, going through the text again, line by line to figure out what it was that you just memorized because the meaning's not always, the meaning's not really front and center at the beginning, but actually the pronunciation, the internalization of the entire text itself is what's uh, that first stage and then going through and, and figuring out what everything means is the second stage. And then there's a third stage where you're taking the text apart, essentially. And this is all happening orally for the most part in, in the old, you know, sort of the olden days, quote unquote. Um, and it changes. It has changed over even the period that I was in Kerala, as I talk about a little bit in the book. Physical books, like we imagine books, become more important uh, in, the, in the days closer to where we are now. But that third stage, the text gets separated and it gets thrown back and forth between teacher and student, sometimes uh, in the presence of uh, patients as well. And it gets dissembled um, uh, after a patient leaves and then reassembled when a new patient comes and uh, it becomes a conversational. It's on the tongue, perhaps. I, I love that phrase that you share with me. It, it really fits well for what um, this practice of face-to-face -face pedagogy and education and then clinical treatment um, in, you know, embodies or entails in, in the South Indian Gurukula. And it's both. And this is where I think the you know, the eye-opening aspect for me really hit hard was it's, it's a philological endeavor in the way that I understood philological research um, coming up through uh, graduate school in, in, in America or in the United States. And then, but it's a, it's a practical philology. It, it, it doesn't end with simply amassing an understanding an appreciation for a text and its context perhaps why it was produced, but rather it has to have an applied uh, component for it to be truly useful. And, and in this case, the, the applied component is to, to heal ailing bodies. Or, you know, sometimes there's, there's also a little bit of mental um, work being done amongst these, these families of physicians, but it's mostly uh, physical things that I, I observed. No, I like in I like in um, many traditional um, South Asian texts as more uh, as more akin to manuals or more akin to so um, it, it's more evident in medicine where practice is needed, but even in philosophy, it's 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 um, uh, whether it's yoga sutras, whether it's whatever you're looking at, it's it's more akin to a driver's manual, and then you need a, a driving instructor and a bit of practice, and yeah, it's that's a whole different um, way to regard what text is and how mm -hmm. text functions. And although we have classics translated sitting on various shelves of specialists and and laypersons alike, um, uh, when we pick up uh, anything, the Devi Mahatmya. Um, 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 uh, translations of the of the Vedic hymns, we bring to that book 
all of this cultural and intellectual conditioning about how to regard it as if it was created to be a standalone thing, to be read by an individual in isolation of tradition. Mm-hmm. And yet um, there's great utility in that, but it seems to me your research really richly, um, richly um, illumines the more, the more that's missing with just a piece of uh, parchment, yes? I think I think yeah I think you you're you're nicely describing what it is that I'm hoping to just you know describe by the practice of text in this book which um, brings out a, a level of textual study uh, of philology that sometimes is overlooked or is just simply not engaged in um, when we come up through different traditions of textual study like I did you know uh, in in the United States was was unlike. Uh, what I learned in South India, where texts need to be, in, 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 a, in a sense, um, reconstructed over and over and over again with people uh, in the context in which um, they can be useful. And in, in the case of the medical environment or clinic, as we say, as I say in, in the book, um, that was happening all the time. And uh, that was where these folks, these, these Vaijas, these physicians of Ayurveda uh, found that their philological expertise, which was quite amazing, right? As good as I've ever seen anybody um, being able to, to read texts, explain texts, teach them, um, was really where the rubber hit the road, so to speak, was only after it's been applied. And then it, interestingly, I think in the medical context, the patient becomes a critical player in this too, because the patient is also getting exposed to often a conversation between the physician and the student. Uh, um, but but if, if that conversation isn't visible, it's also the patient who's getting this information from the physician. And depending on who the patient is, if it's a small child, the conversation's obviously very different than it would be with an adult. Um, but there's a kind of education of the patient to become their own practitioner or physician later on, um, given the explanation of the problem that they might be addressing and how to treat it, so that they're empowered with that same kind of uh, philological acumen that the physician has. Um, You know, it's a different level, of course, and there's no expectation that the patients will go off and read these texts or anything, but they're, they're still learning about what that material is, and they're learning how to, to use it. And that's the practice, uh, the practical side that that I found so important and that I wanted to write about. Fascinating. What would you say the key takeaway or takeaways are of this work? Well, I think, you know, just simply put, um, the book generally describes the impact of uh, European colonial biomedicine on education and healing in modern Ayurveda, because um, while we were just talking about the philological aspects, it's really the Gurukula model that I describe in the, the latter chapters based on my field work is an exception to what we find in India today. The Ayurvedic college that comes up out of these reforms from 1890 to the early 1970s is the way that most Ayurvedic physicians in India are trained today. And it's a, a model of education that is, is based on 
European colonial medicine or British colonial medicine in colleges with multiple faculties, big lecture halls and, um, you know, uh, practicums or residencies, as, as they're called, uh, you know, in North America, that's all there. And they're actually, it was a reorganization of the Sanskrit medical literature to reflect the categories and the names and the disciplines and so on that you find in, in medical schools um, in Europe or North America now. And, and so it looks a little different. And so when I started working in South India uh, at this Gurukul, I was meeting young physicians, usually you know, in, their, in their 20s, who had already gotten these degrees at Ayurvedic colleges, but then they've postponed the movement into their professional lives to study these Sanskrit texts with these, these gurus, with these teachers. And um, my questions and conversations with them you know, were always often you know, one of the first things I wanted to know is why, you know, what's bringing you here? And these were folks who wanted to know about Ayurveda. So they went to Ayurvedic college, but they somehow saw the text as really critical to their professional lives. And they didn't feel they got a good education in it because the reality is that Ayurvedic colleges and study of Sanskrit nowadays is pretty minimal. And um, they felt that doing this sort of a, a residency in, in a Gurukula in South India um, was bringing them into a connection with the profession in a way that the college wouldn't provide. And so uh, it looks at the, the ways in which people from both institutions view the Sanskrit texts. Um, and, and, and that's what I wanted to, to, to show. I also talked to people at, the college, at some colleges in South India um, Sanskrit professors at, at, at a college in uh, Tiruvananthapuram, for example, and his experience with students. And um, there are all sorts of different stories in the book about from both locations about what Sanskrit means and, and why it's important or perhaps why it's not important, because you do see plenty of that, too. Would you be able to generally um, um, characterize these two overarching approaches to Sanskrit texts? Um, yeah, generally speaking, um, one is treated as history, right? At the college, the Sanskrit texts, the, the foundational texts, the Charaka, Charaka and, and, and Bhagavata, the Sashtanga Hardayam, they're obviously recognized. And the, there are theories in those texts that are still important to the practice of Ayurveda today, but they get put into a reorganized way to describe them uh, according to new disciplines within the study of medicine that you find. Uh, in biomedical schools. And, and so it, it extracts the, the information, takes them out of the way in which they were originally, let's say, or in the, in the, in the Sanskrit texts that we have, the way they're comprised there, and translates them as well. And there's a whole history that I talk about of translate, translation and whether it's important or why it's important of these terms. Uh, and then it becomes a kind of historical study and um, not a study that requires an engagement with the literature. It's very short. And so even the actual acquisition of Sanskrit, because students will arrive at, at these colleges, depending on where they are or what their backgrounds are, with very little knowledge to sometimes no knowledge of Sanskrit. And then they'll take a minimal uh, level of coursework in it and be done with it. Um, whereas at the, you know, in the Gurukula model of, of Kerala, uh, Mukam Mukam, that um, I the, the practitioners that I study in the book and talk about in the book and their teachers and their teachers before them, it's a, a complete mastery and memorization of a, of, a, of a work. And in Kerala, the one classic is the Ashtanga Hridayam that is used almost exclusively. Um, 
And that is the requirement in order to, to practice Ayurveda. That's where uh, you become a master or you become a physician, you know, capable of handling patients' problems. And so they're very, they're very different. It's, it's almost like night and day in some sense. This tension is so, so important to me. This is the tension of, um, uh, in many ways, at the heart of religious studies. It's a tension at the heart of uh, Hindu studies. Um, it's, um, this is partially why this work so fascinates me, because it's showing these very two different ways of regarding texts, ways of walking through the world. Um, uh, the one mode that we're all, all too familiar with is that, you know, the mind's basically a shelf and you put books in it, you know, you, it's uh, information. Mm-hmm. And then another mode is transformation. You, 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 you eat the text and digest it and assimilate it. It becomes part of your tissues, your psychic tissues, as it were. It nourishes you. And then what's so profound about that mode, to my mind, is that you master the minutia of the text, but then you can dispense with entire verses when a principle or an instinct or an intuition overrides that. You master it, but then it's malleable in your mind. I mean, I've seen this uh, I had the good fortune of having a traditional Indian guru for a few of the subjects that I study traditionally. Um, but it's, it's, it's quite profound to see, to witness an action, which I'm as evidence in your book, clearly you, you've, you've noted many a time. Yeah, I think you put it so well. And one thing that uh, I try to bring out in, in the book and talking with the students of these three um Vaidya gurus, I, I call them. So they're physician teachers because they, they embody both of these sides. They're teachers uh, of the text as philologists, but they're always physicians as well. And these two, I hyphenate them in the book. They can't separate those two things from their work. But the students of these, these three um, Vaidya gurus that, that I describe in the book are are pretty pretty clear insofar as what they see differently happening by spending time in the guru kulas is that they're learning how to think, right? They're 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 learning very deeply aspects of texts, um, but it's not just uh, a shelf. They are not just a shelf where the texts are getting placed there and then they can you know um, you know spew it back out for an exam or something. But rather they're learning how to think. It's an epistemological field that they're sort of cultivating, and and that field of course is always geared towards what we would call health, well-being, or the identification and treatment of disease. There are lots of different ways and within the text that they're learning that you know we could describe them. Uh, but it's about knowledge and how to apply it in situations. And it's, it is, it's a very fascinating sort of uh, contradiction between what becomes the college, uh, which is something that I think probably a lot of listeners are familiar with. I'm very familiar with that. And it was an eye opener for me, for sure, when I first started exploring the educational aspect of the Gurukula in Kerala, and then revisiting over and over and meeting cohorts and cohorts of students over all these years. And um, just their, you know, similar stories and uh, hopes and aspirations for what they were going to be doing as, as Ayurvedic physicians and, and how the texts were important to them. It was very telling because it was very different for other people who are at the college or for the history that I describe in the, in the second chapter about why the college is needed. And so, you know, I try not to put judgment on either side, but there are very different views about what it means to, to practice medicine within this tradition and the role of these foundational texts. 
what subfields um i'll ask you both questions and you can you can you can sort of feel out how you want to respond to them what subfields do you think this book um contributes to or or, or shifts and, and and sort of another another way to arrive at this is who might benefit from reading your book yeah thank you that's uh it's a question i I, of course, you think a lot about when you propose a book uh, and, you know, uh, presses want to know this, too. But for me, I, I came up through a training in the history of religions. And so I think through a lot of categories still uh, that you get in the history of religions. And and so while this book doesn't have a lot of overtly, you know, um, religious studies language, I think it does address questions like text and ritual for sure, which is the second to last chapter is all about ritual um, that would appeal to people who study religion. And it, and it wrestles with some of the, the problems that I see within religious studies to, um, or at least within scholarship and religious studies to sort of lay claim to some of these, these big categories like ritual in particular. And I, and I hope to show how it can actually be a, a bit more malleable and useful in, a, in different cultural institutions, including medicine in this case. So religious studies for sure. Um, the historical components of the book, I think, contribute to the history of, of medicine and education as well in India. In, in the, the latter, in particular, by showing the... Um, the, the role of the Gurukula in the, the history of Indian education, which is something that I was surprised to find uh, was not as extensive as you'd guess, given how, how, how old the institution is, um, how much is discussed in literature, but hasn't been treated as an, a viable institution in a sustained way for education um, in, in what I would hope would be in you know, uh, you know, modern modern scholarship on, on the question of education in India. I think there's also um, a field of medical anthropology, a component of medical anthropology uh, to the book as well, uh, given the ethnographic work. Were there any other aspects of the book you hoped we touch on today? Um, I, I don't know. I think, you know, I think we've, we've addressed a lot of it. Um, it's hard to, to say because, uh, you know, for me, um, it's it's a uh, it's really it's a book about a certain group of people, and it's about uh, the certain group of people who illustrate all sorts of interesting and fascinating things that might come up in these fields that you know that I just mentioned: history of medicine, history of education, medical anthropology, and religious studies. Uh, and yet, um, you know, I, I hope it's pitched in such a way that not only scholars of these traditions can uh, appreciate or these disciplines can appreciate it and find things that are useful, um, even if they're not looking at South Asia or India in this case, but perhaps in other uh, societies, post-colonial societies in particular, that maybe have had this kind of an uh, engagement between European colonial medicine and whatever medicines were practiced in the locations that they're at, but also people who are interested in Ayurveda generally, um, to get an insight into what it's like to, to study a this 2,000 plus year old tradition um, in some parts of, uh, of India, in this case, South India, that are not in the biomedical mold of uh, an institution um, with uh, lecture halls and multiple faculty and so on, but uh, something that's quite different and quite old, which is the Gurukula. Fascinating. Thank you very much for appearing on the podcast today. Yeah, thank you for having me, Raj. It's been great to meet you.
For those of you, for those of you listening, we've been speaking with Dr. Anthony Cerulli on a fascinating brand new publication, The Practice of Texts, Education and Healing in South India. Um, it is available through uh, Luminos, which is the open access um, wing of uh, the University of California Press. Uh, click on the link in the podcast notes and the book shall be yours. Um, until next time, stay well, stay safe, stay sane, and keep contemplating the various modalities of healing. Take care.